Our passage this evening is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. This is God's holy word. Please give careful attention to the reading of it. Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, and has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. A growing burden unaddressed for long enough can buckle the knees like a soldier's rucksack lugged for too many miles with too little rest. Sometimes a delayed response to a problem you don't have an answer for at the moment is the best course of action. Bearing a burden gracefully and having the self-control to wait for a solution to present itself can be wise. But there are times when Kicking the can down the road is no longer an option. When a pebble in the boot has turned into a blister that you just cannot put weight on anymore and the situation needs to be addressed right now. It could be a budget that even your third job isn't balancing. It could be lactose that just isn't working in your diet anymore as you get older. It could be a socially acceptable sin that the Holy Spirit has grieved in you long enough and is lovingly and caringly removing your comfortableness with it. Or it could be something deeper, an unresolved question of faith that's truly distressing the soul, something about your understanding of God and his ways that you just don't understand and you can't categorize or come to terms with. Well, Paul understands that while he's at a place in this epistle where he feels so blessed that he's ready to overflow with praise he recognizes that something he mentions in chapter 3, verse 1, is undoubtedly an ongoing stressor on the faith of some in the Ephesian church. Everything Paul says in this section, then, is a digression from his readiness to erupt in worship to an apostolic tackling of a difficult theological elephant in the room. Up to this point, Paul's been speaking of his this priceless inheritance, this adoption by the sovereign king of the universe, of heirs from every tribe and tongue and nation. 
the sharing of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ with a new creation people that he's made his church, his family, and even his temple where Christ dwells through the Spirit. And so, verse 1, for this reason, for the, for the gospel that, of, to the Gentiles that he's been made a steward of, even I, Paul, totally unworthy of this high call, the chief of sinners, a former persecutor of the church, I have been blessed to have my eyes open to Christ. I have been blessed to extend this free offer of the gospel, not only to Israel, but to the ends of the earth. And now I'm blessed to be a prisoner of Christ Jesus on your behalf of you Gentiles. And from here, he's ready to birth force and praise and say, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family on heaven and earth is named. But he doesn't. He will say that. He will say precisely this in verses 14 and 50 when he circles, 14 and 15 when he circles back to this worshipful direction of thought. And yet here he stops and he backs up knowing that his imprisonment may be a heavy burden wearing out the hopes of his audience. After all, if God can't or won't get his chosen apostle to the Gentiles out of prison, how can the gospel be loosed to the nations? Maybe Paul's imprisonment means that he was never really chosen by God as an apostle. Or maybe he was chosen, but Paul has somehow been divested of his apostolic office. Maybe he's like Judas and somehow he's been disqualified and fallen out of favor with God. Maybe God's hand of providence isn't working all things together for Paul. Or worse, what if Paul doesn't represent Christ and it's, it's, it, Paul does represent Christ and it's just Jesus that is failing to build his church and keep the gates of hell from prevailing? But even if none of those things are true, and Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, and a new covenant has been extended to all the earth, which it has, what kind of covenant is this really? What kind of covenant is this where clearly it doesn't give us our best life now? It doesn't seem to come with the same normative expectation of prosperity like Israel had. So how is this new covenant better if its apostle is stuck in prison, and I can't seem to escape suffering in my own life either? This all seems very anticlimactic, this new covenant. If my trials and tribulations aren't necessarily going away, if I still have to struggle to make rent, if my health may not improve, and some of us even dwell as if in house arrest with loved ones who oppose Christ. As Paul mentions his imprisonment then, he knows that these questions may be storming around like a hurricane in the hearts of some in the Ephesian congregation. And so he'll take a beat and talk to them about it, about how to avoid losing heart. Moving into verse 2 then, he reminds them he has a calling that he did not design for himself. It was revealed to him from the very beginning that suffering would be a fundamental aspect of his apostolic calling. He tells them, look, you've surely heard about this stewardship, this management role of God's grace that was given to me for your sake. My part in the mission of the church, the way that I'm called to carry this gospel torch to the world, isn't my idea. It's God's. When the Lord told Ananias to look for a man of Tarsus named Saul and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight, he also told Ananias, who was very nervous about Saul's notoriously evil deeds, he told Ananias, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine 
to carry my name forth before the Gentiles and kings of the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so Paul's saying here, this is the lot that I've been given. But Paul is content with this lot. It is well with his soul. Because Paul was once a man doing what he saw as right in his own eyes, and he wasn't free. He was a slave to his ignorance and sin and the promptings of the evil one who loved provoking Saul to persecute Christ and his church. But Paul had been set free from that cruel taskmaster, and that was a much worse spiritual prison that had Christ not pulled him out of, he would have spent an eternity suffering in. His bars now are real and painful, and the worst is actually yet to come for him. But they are only an earthly, temporary confinement. So Paul doesn't see himself as being imprisoned by Satan or the guards or even the civil magistrates. He is the one that's free in in, in all of the most important eternal ways. And the guards are the ones that are chained to him by the sovereign, nail-pierced hands of his Lord. So that what his accusers mean for evil, his Lord means for good. From here, Paul takes this revelation of his suffering, and he shifts slightly from emphasizing the suffering to emphasizing the revelation. He basically says in verses 3 and 4 that the mystery of the gospel was likewise made known to him by revelation. And since he literally just wrote a bunch about this mystery in the previous couple of chapters, he's saying if you go back and reread what he's written, you can perceive the insight into the mystery of Christ that has been revealed to him. And there's kind of this nod here to the nature of and benefit of having the revealed word of God written down and not only heard, but also able to be studied. We're reminded of how blessed we are to have all these copies of the scriptures to study that we might learn well how to rightly divide them. Studying them would, of course, have been significantly trickier for the early church. They may have only had one or two copies, of handwritten copies of the Old Testament scriptures, and maybe one or two copies of the New Testament scriptures. The apostles were in the process of writing and distributing. Point is, neither Paul's sufferings or the mystery of the gospel to the nations are something Paul came up with. They are revealed as two sides of the same coin. They are personally inseparable for Paul in his practical ministry. And we see in verse 5, they are theologically relinked in redemptive history as well. So Paul says, this mystery was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Righteousness by faith was established from the start as Adam and Eve trusted the promise of the of the future seed who would be victorious over the serpent's line, and they made babies in, in faith to that end. And of course, righteousness was counted to Abraham as he trusted that a people and the land would be his inheritance, even while having children seemed naturally impossible for him. And when something about the nations, uh, and something about all of the nations worshiping God was also known to the Old Covenant saints, Psalm 86 said, all the nations would worship the Lord and glorify his name. Micah 4 said all the nations would flow to the mountain of the Lord. 
Isaiah 60 added that the kings of those nations would also come to his light. And Isaiah 66 said that these things would even spill over into the new heavens and the new earth. But they could not have guessed or deduced the nature of the Son of God and the incarnation or the power of the God-man's sacrifice to make Gentiles as well as Jews clean. Verse 5 ends with, by the Spirit. And this rounds off Paul's emphasis on revelation here. By the Spirit would be the last thing whoever reads this epistles to the church said before taking a breath and moving to the next section. So it's meant to linger in the air and perhaps call to mind that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The prophets of old spoke by the Spirit, and and so does Paul when he reveals verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs or co-heirs, co-members of the same body, co-partakers in the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul really likes these co-prefixes. They convey this unambiguous unity among the saints throughout history. And they're helpful here because we might think, well, the Old Testament saints could have maybe guessed that Jews and Gentiles would eventually come to some kind of truce. That's maybe possible. Maybe the Jews could imagine the Gentiles coming to their senses to some degree and realizing that even dogs with scraps from such a great master's table is better than nothing. But Paul doesn't say that the Jews and Gentiles have a ceasefire agreement or a two-tiered heir and dog kind of a situation in the kingdom. Paul says we're co-everything with the Jews. So there's no reluctant two for me and one for you and two for me and one for you kind of dealing out of the blessings and the benefits of the kingdom of God to the Gentiles. And this kind of unity has only been revealed to be possible now because of the full revelation of the person of Christ and his work. Verse 7 begins, Of this gospel I was made a servant or deacon according to the gift of grace which was given to me. And here we see Paul's understanding and acceptance of another purpose behind his call to suffer. It's something he explains in a few places, including 2 Corinthians 6. There he makes the case that the suffering of those who serve and lead you in Christ is proof that their hearts are wide open to you. It's false teachers who think that an apostolic call or a call to ministry of any kind is a ticket to easy street. Therefore, the obstacles Paul faced for you were stamped were a stamp of authenticity on his ministry. They attested to his being a fitting and earnest minister and servant of the one who loved us by laying down his life for us on the cross. And Paul continues saying that this grace has been given to suffer well and show that his heart is wide, is wide open to you. This grace is in accordance with the effective working of his power. Paul remembered the powerful, blinding glory of the risen, exalted Christ that overcame him on the road to Damascus for all of his life. He recounts the story numerous times throughout his ministry in Acts, but he also knows from his experience praying multiple times that some infirmity would leave him, that the Lord wants us to be content with his grace and trust that sometimes our weakness allows his strength to be shown forth more clearly. 
and certainly not the worst thing in the world to be humbled or sidelined for a time and then get to see God move without your help. Paul has learned this as he's in prison. He's learned to let grace be sufficient for him in his weakness, and he's thankful to model that as an apostle to the Gentiles. In verse 8, then, he humbly moves forward with this posture of contentment with the grace that's been given to him. To me, he says the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul is free from the weight of guilt of his past sin as Saul and from the weight of all the things that he still falls short in. He has not attained perfection. But he hasn't forgotten the grace that plucked him out of deep darkness. And rather than that humble past making him feel fearful or ashamed or worried that he might be called a hypocrite, he knows his unforgettable need for grace as a major reason that he was chosen as an apostle to the Gentiles. And so when he calls himself the very least of all the saints, he's not being falsely humble or self-deprecating. He knows that his only hope was and is and always will be the grace of God in Christ. And depending on your translation, it was this untraceable, unsearchable, inscrutable, boundless, unfathomable, immeasurable grace that he can never forget. And so any weakness on his part is never surprising. It's Christ's power he proclaims and not his own. In fact, the grace of God transformed the suffering that he associated with his name from pain dealt out in service to the kingdom of darkness to pain received in service to the kingdom of light. And if you ask Paul which suffering he would rather be associated with, 10 out of 10 times he'll choose the pain of walking in the light over the guilt-ridden pain of walking in the darkness. He has traveled more than far enough down the dark path, and a step, one more step in the direction of those shadows, again, would be a burden greater than any pebble or blister in the boot. He's happy instead, verse 9, to be a conduit to bring light for everyone who is, which is the plan of the mystery hidden for all ages in God who created all things. And here we see that it's not like the Old Testament prophets and saints were dum-dums or were sinning for not anticipating that the Gentiles would no longer be strangers and aliens but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The character of the Son of God and his taking on a fully human nature that he might be a proper and perfect sacrifice for all united to him by faith was not fully fleshed out. And without this unintuitive, unfathomable historic event of God taking a truly human nature and all that sacrificing himself would accomplish, such a complete and globally reaching salvation, it couldn't work. They couldn't have, they couldn't have guessed it. The Old Testament saints then can't be faulted for not seeing the end of this mystery in its fullness. However, the last part of verse 9 says, hidden for all ages in God who created all things. This is a reminder that this mystery doesn't mean that the gospel to the Gentiles in Christ was an afterthought. It, just because the Jews didn't, couldn't have fully guessed it, it was always the plan. All of mankind was made in the image of God from the beginning, created from the beginning, and while God had a special people for a time and no obligation to extend the gospel to the world, 
mankind as a whole, as his creation was never forgotten or out of the plan. Next, in verse 10, we find that the Jews weren't the only ones surprised by God's plan, nor is Paul or even the scriptures the only means by which this surprise has been revealed. The existence of the church itself is a witness to the plan, making it known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And so we read in 1 Corinthians 2, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, excuse me, no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. And we might think, okay, well, the Spirit revealing this mystery, that checks out. The prophets and apostles, and especially Paul revealing it, that tracks. Christ himself, absolutely. But us? Yes, us. And while we, of course, don't accomplish the gospel, the church's very existence as this multicultural, multi-ethnic body unified in Christ and in the power of the new creation is this constant witness to the rulers and authorities on earth and in the heavenly places that Christ is victorious and exalted and that we are raised and seated with him by the Spirit. And all this, verse 11 and 12, was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Now, Paul moves swiftly in these last verses and uses punchy, powerful language that matches the confidence that they proclaim. He's wrapping up this digression now about all the ways that he is blessed in his suffering so that verses 14 and 15, he's, he's not going to say like Eeyore, well, the suffering is fine. But instead, he'll pick up next time where he left off ready to praise God. Paul is speaking with a tone that matches James, encouraging us to imitate him as he also imitates Christ, counting it all joy when you fall into various trials, and looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Because while neither Paul nor any of us necessarily understands the specific reasons why each individual trial we face happens, we can understand what God means to accomplish in principle. For one, as with all of the suffering of the saints, the Lord meant for Paul's testing to produce steadfast faith so that he may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing with all of us. And second, specific to his apostolic calling, Paul knows that his suffering is full of purpose for your sake. He knows that he's a steward, like in in the parable of the talent, entrusted with God's property, you. And for Paul, this talent, this stewardship, is a gift. It unites him to his suffering redeemer, and it models for the Gentiles what it meant to count the cost of trusting in Christ. And for all these reasons, Paul was more than content to be imprisoned and suffer for Christ. And so when the prophet Agabus took Paul's belt to bind his own feet and hands and tell the brothers, thus says the Holy Spirit, 
this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. And when the brothers and the people urged Paul not to go up to Jerusalem, Paul said, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. This is the heart of Paul, whose heart is wide open for you because of the grace of God he powerfully received in Christ. And by it, he pleads with the Ephesian church and with you in verse 13, not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Your suffering may be heavy and cumbersome like rucksack, but Paul, but Christ has given you Paul as an example of how to theoretically tighten up all those straps and burdens and properly distribute the weight in a way that's manageable so that you can keep on hiking. And yet, even if your knees buckle at times, his strength is made perfect in our weakness, and his exaltation is made clear as we share our burdens with one another, united in him, and the hope of our inheritance in him, which is your glory, and yet ultimately our gracious, suffering, Redeemer's glory. Amen? Let's pray.